thanks for joining our weekly podcast. I'm Robin Lewis, founder and CEO of The Robin Report, uh, which, by the way, and I always like to insert this comment because we're much more than a, a daily report. Uh, we really view it as a, a knowledge platform, okay, from which we communicate thought leadership on various strategic topics uh, through our reports, uh, but also these podcasts as well as webinars and we hope uh, next fall live events. So along with our chief strategist, Shelly Cohan, by the way, is also a professor at FIT and Syracuse University. We welcome you to our weekly podcast, which is coming from uh, the Romney Report recording studios, which we call The Nest. Ha ha. Anyway, today's topic, the move to rental, reuse, and free. Well, and free is obviously a bit exaggerated, but it is a prediction my co-author Michael Dart and I made in our book, Retail Seismic Shift, which was published in 2017. And back in April, Shelly and I did a podcast in the early stages of the inflation issue uh, due to the expected post-pandemic demand surge and the disrupted supply chains as well as uh, inventory issues, low inventories to be exact. Anyway, today we felt that we now know uh, more about what we're going through and therefore an update uh, couldn't be more timely given this once or in a hundred year shock on the economy and its effects are really unprecedented. One group of, of economists believe we're headed in the most deleterious and harmful effects of what they believe will be a spiraling inflationary cycle. While Fed Chairman Jerome Powell and other economists take a more reasonable assessment uh, that we will have an immediate spike in inflation, but it should be transitory or short-lived. So <clears throat> with the post-pandemic surge in demand, the timing and size of which obviously could not be predicted by anyone. Therefore, supply and the production of enough of it to meet demand, surge in demand, could not be planned in advance. And this is across all consumer-facing industries, okay? The result is huge supply chain disruptions and not enough stuff across all categories, leaving consumers with no choice other than to pay higher prices. And, and of course, Robin, the other issue related to the higher prices is the cost of doing business, which well, is that, go ahead. Which, which is yeah. really increasing in terms of employment, operating expenses, tariff, taxes, all that takes away from the bottom line. Yeah, I'm glad you added those points, Shelley. And so the two questions that are still hanging out there one, will retailers raise prices to cover the higher costs charged by their producers and also ingredient products and potentially higher wages for their employees? So are they going to risk charging more and risk losing customers who will not be willing to pay higher prices? And on the other side, the second question hanging out there is, will consumers indeed pay higher prices 
since, as we know, they've been addicted to the heroin of lower and lower prices and perpetual price promoting uh, that has been the built-in strategy among consumer-facing commerce for actually decades. Actually, Robin, aren't you the one that coined the phrase tit-for-tat pricing is a race to the bottom? I remember reading that years ago um, with this constant discounting, someone ends up out of business. Yeah. Yes, Shelly, I did coin it. And I think, I don't know, maybe somebody said it before I did. But when you think about it, it, it really is a race to the bottom. So the thesis in our book uh, would suggest that retailers will do everything they can to not raise prices. And consumers will do everything they can not to pay higher prices. And, you know, if you think about these two dynamics kind of working in tandem, it would support Powell's prediction of a transitory inflationary period. And without getting into the weeds of our book thesis, I will just highlight the key points. Okay, for, for several decades before the pandemic uh, disruption and shutdown of the economy, we had the opposite of too much demand and too little, I'm sorry, too much supply and too little demand for decades in almost every consumer facing industry. There was just too much of everything. Point number one, uh, the cost of commodities, according to the International Monetary Fund, has been declining 1% a year for the past 140 years. Accordingly, ingredient products to make final products have been decreasing. And point number two, more and more manufacturing capacity shifted to lower labor cost countries. You know, read China, India, Vietnam, Bangladesh, and on and on. And this, as globalization and technology also spawned more efficient distribution, transportation, and logistics. Point number three, well, population growth in the developed countries, including the US, began to slow down in the beginning of the early 80s, uh, population growth was around 3% a year in this country, and it is now averaging, and since then, hovering around 1%. So as population growth and demand began to slow down, thus the organically lowering demand, supply and the creation of more and more stuff did not slow down. A lot of it having to do with all businesses pushing growth for growth's sake. And this is a no brainer. Think about this. The CEO of XYZ company at the end of the year has a cocktail party and he congratulates his team for growing the business that year 5%, okay? But then he says, great work guys, great job. But now we have to beat that number next year. Their brains, my friend, only see infinite growth, infinite growth. And sorry, guys, nothing on this planet has infinite growth. Remember the bell curve, birth, growth, maturity, decline, and death. Anyway, sorry to be so cynical. So point number four, just pile it on. How many new brand and product launches every year? 
how many cereal brands do you see on the shelves in the grocery stores today versus 50 years ago? Try uh, three major cereal brands and today, I'll bet you can count 25 or 30. Uh, there used to be four major blue jean brands in 1980. Today, try something like 800. Wow. According to NPD. Oh, and one more thing, e-commerce, lest we forget that. With investors fire hosing money at technology startups, a new entrepreneurial brand a day. And then, of course, there's Amazon. Final, final, final point of all this, Shelley. Pre-pandemic, way overstored and overstuffed, forcing the low-hanging fruit strategy across all consumer-facing businesses, price promoting, discounting, race to the bottom, to steal share in a notice low growth market. And when they can't discount too close to what it costs the goods to make the goods, it all moves to off price models and on and on and eventually moving to free or into landfills. That's a whole other story. A bit exaggerated, right? But you get the point. And now Shelley, back to our topic and the big aha. As I said, retailers and brands will do whatever they have to do to not pass increased pricing onto consumers. So first, I believe that they will take a hit on their bottom lines just to keep those consumers. But they're also getting very clever and very creative in coming up with all kinds of new ways to discount value, okay? But this discounting value, the way they're doing it to the consumer doesn't really look like discounting, okay? In fact, these kind of abracadabra models, as I'm calling them, actually adds to those young consumers' perceived value. And again, these ideas started even before the pandemic. And, so, and here we go, Shelley. Renting, swapping, buying pre-owned, return stuff to be repaired and sent back. And now I see you can borrow stuff for a period of time and then purchase it later for a lower price. And now finally, one other very clever way of moving everything to free or what you might call, I don't know, discounting light and really resurrected from half a century ago. It is buy now, pay later or that buzzy acronym BNPL, which Shelley, you did a great article on just a few days ago. So take us off into this business. Give us some more color. Sure, Robin. I mean, my article was really about, you know, retailers trying to pass along the cost of doing business to customers. So more specifically and recently, you know, charging customers a fee for using a credit card. You know, since when does a customer have to pay for businesses, services and service fees? Uh, I have to tell you about a restaurant I went to in San Diego pre-pandemic. And it's a well-known, very upscale restaurant. And there was a sign posted near the hostess stand that said, due to rising employment and healthcare costs, that they were assessing a fee on every check to cover purchases for employment. Now, that's, to me, is just crazy. Now I have to start paying for the employment costs of a restaurant where I'm having dinner. Um, but uh, the other aspect of the issue that you laid out for our listeners 
is that the younger generations, the millennials and the Gen Zs, they just want less stuff. The new young consumer has a different value system and they're really shifting away from stuff and moving towards collaborative consumption. They value access over owning something. And this has really impacted the retail rental space and has even impacted secondhand vintage market, reuse, repurpose. Um, and I'm sure you read the other day that Rent the Runway is filing for IPO. Right. Um, and they, they've really made a nice turnaround coming out of the pandemic. Um, and if they do actually get the IPO, I think Rent the Runway would be one of, if not the first public fashion rental company. So, you know, Rent the Runway solved a major problem for the consumer of being able to rent instead of buy dresses for special occasions. And of yeah. course, another new uh, model, Rebag. Rebag's a company um, that really specializes in the resale of luxury handbags. And they just announced a few days ago an extension of their model using its artificial intelligence powered instant pricing engine. And so they call it Claire Trade. You know, it's kind of a pun on fair trade, Claire Trade. Right. Um, but customers only pay the difference between what they trade and what they buy. So for example, I sell a Louis Vuitton handbag for $800 and I buy a Bottega Veneta for a thousand. I only pay the difference between the two, the $200. So this keeps my, as a customer, my out-of-pocket expense down. And it also, in some states, minimizes the sales tax I have to pay on that $800 or $1,000 handbag, right? And it lastly, it helps the customer resell what they already have, which obviously makes them feel better about, you know, doing something with maybe old favorites. But Rebag has raised $68 million in funding and puts most of its investments in technology. So this instant pricing engine that really provides Rebag with a competitive advantage in its ability to determine market price real time. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. It's amazing. And then over the past few years, of course, we continually read about the San Francisco-based company ThreadUp, who has secured you know, many, many partnerships with the likes of Fear Bradley, Abercrombie & Fitch, Reebok, Rent the Runway, and recently, um, they also are doing a collaboration or a partnership with Madewell, where you can take in any pair of jeans and get credit towards a new pair of Madewell jeans. Oh, boy. Unbelievable. Uh, and those are great examples, Shelley. Thanks. And, and your point about uh, now the biggest consumer segment being millennials and Gen Zs, preferring access over ownership and collaborative consumption is what will accelerate and perpetuate uh, these new business models, okay? Again, everything starts with and is driven by the consumer. Let's not forget that. So, Shelly, with that in mind, uh, to answer one of the two questions, um, will consumers pay higher prices? I say they will not. Uh, they will just spend less in total, buying fewer things, or maybe spending differently. And what do you think about that, Shelley? I think the value of stuff is going down and the value of collaborative consumption is rising. 
There's also a big shift moving more quickly now. It's been moving for a while, but it's certainly been expedited now from fast fashion to slow fashion. So quality over quantity, um, buy a well-made hoodie and pass it down to the next generation kind of mentality. You know, customers may spend higher prices on certain products and services, but those products and services have to deliver their promise or value. You know, buy one high quality versus three of less quality. And this whole shift to mass casualization, which is being accelerated by the pandemic, you know, has really impacted where customers are spending money. But higher end brands with great products providing alternatives to purchasing expensive products outright is again, a new trend that we're seeing. So fashion giant, Rebecca Menkoff, which is really one of the most innovative brands out there, not just from a product perspective, their products are fantastic, but also just from, they are so in tune and in step with their target market. So last month, Rebecca Menkoff started offering customers the ability to rent products. And I'm not talking about a subscription rental you know, process where they have to sign up for a period of time, but I literally mean rent products as an alternative to purchasing. So for example, I can borrow a Rebecca Menkoff handbag for 25% of a retail price for a two week rental period. Yeah, that's great. And you know, your point about the value of stuff is going down is very important, Shelley. And that includes the real value of the materials and production of stuff. Uh, for example, in our book, we pointed out that in 1939, an RCA TV set in today's dollars would have cost $10,000. <laughs> I mean, think, think about 10 times what it costs today. And of course, we know that the cost of most apparel production has also decreased. Yeah, that's true. I think jeans back in 1873 were about $3 a pair, which if you translate it to today's money, it's about $58. Um, and I did read, uh, I think it was two or three years ago, of a vintage 1893 pair of jeans that actually sold for $100,000. Uh, but that's that's a different wow. <laughs> uh, a little fun fact there. Um, but in terms of production and margins, you know, many companies are moving to direct to consumer business. We discussed this in our podcast. D to C is no silver bullet. Um, so a trend I'm seeing now is really an increase in margins. So I'll give you an example. Levi, uh, a retail radical from our uh, the Robin Report. Um, their first half year results for 2021 included net profits up. So net profits up 198% over last year and revenues that are up 29% for the period ending in this past May. Um, there's definitely a trend for denim products and a wider acceptance of casualization. So certainly that's helping their business model. But my point is this, Levi, had record gross margins at almost 59%. And a lot of this gross margin is driven by the direct-to-consumer, price increases, savings in uh, production, lower promotions, and more full-price selling. So Levi's using data and artificial intelligence to further understand customer behaviors 
and improve the shopper journey. So for example, they're one of the ones, one of the major brands that is actually using AI demand forecasting, which plans out merchandise assortments and allocations for stores and e-commerce. So by using this type of technology, what happens is they improve full price sell-through, they provide better inventory management, and they reduce their costs. Levi's inventories were down 12% compared to the end of the uh, prior uh, year period, but the company has experienced higher margins. So essentially higher profits on less inventory, right? And yeah, of course, yeah. as you know, Levi has their second hand where customers can recycle their Levi jeans. So the increase for production costs is really coming from, um, so increases in production has really come from some of these CSR initiatives. So sustainable supply chain, ethical working conditions. We're also seeing a trend in near sourcing. So producing products closer to the end user, end user. And while with near sourcing, there could be savings on tariff taxes and transportation, there could be higher costs on labor and production. So I think it remains to be seen net net, you know, what the profitability model is from near sourcing or the impact on actual pricing. What is that product going to be priced for, whether it's going to be higher or lower. And as you and I have discussed previously in Made in America, that was our podcast a couple weeks ago. Well, we know that U.S. consumers will not buy American-made products unless, well, I shouldn't say they're not going to buy, they will buy American-made products. But all things equal, price and quality, consumers will buy American, but they won't buy American if the costs are higher. Well, yeah, for sure. Thanks, thanks, Shelley, for repeating the last point there, which finally answers my second of the two questions still hanging out there. Will consumers pay higher prices? And the answer is no, unless if you point out the real and perceived quality and perceived it being the operative word for consumers, unless those two things truly equate to a higher price. And, and thanks for that incredible Levi example. It, it, they are really knocking the ball out of the park. And I'm gonna emphasize what I believe to be one of their most powerful operational strategies. And that is their superior implementation, as you point out, of artificial intelligence, which drives inventory optimization and forecasting, reducing costs, increasing margins, and, the end of the day getting the right product to the right place at the right time and at the right price and what else they delight the consumer so much so that they're willing to pay a fair price we'll come back to levi on or offline more often they're going to spend more with the brand and at the point of purchase they will spend more money the levi story is a strategic message for all brands and retailers. And I guess that kind of wraps it up, Shelley. Um, I just want to thank uh, everybody for listening in. Excellent. And um, also, I just want to say that, you know, I'm kind of excited about these new models, Rob. And I got to be honest, this rental reuse kind of models, this innovative thinking of retailers and brands, because I think it will create less stuff for the environment 
and also give access to a wider range of the population to be able to, you know, have some of these great products. So um, for our listeners, you can find more of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, Buzzsprout, and therobinreport.com. And please follow us on social media, link in with us, and follow us on Twitter for the latest thoughts about the industry. And thanks again. And Shelly, I'm glad you put that last point in there. I think, yeah, in the aggregate, all of these different models are going to move in a positive way towards, um, you know, environmental friendly, um, you know, (laughs) getting rid of some of the stuff, too much stuff, bringing supply and demand back into equilibrium, I hope at some point. Anyway, I do agree with you on that. So uh, thanks again, everybody. And um, as I always end with the point that any, any of you out there listening today have a topic that you've been ruminating about uh, and you would like Shelly and I to cover, please email it to me at robin at the robinreport.com. And thanks again. 